Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Each episode, we discuss a different housing research paper with its author to better understand how we can make our cities more affordable and more equitable places to live. Believe it or not, we have been putting together this podcast for a year now, and this is our final episode of season one. We'll be back in a month or so, but if you've enjoyed the show up to this point, we would really appreciate your support in the form of a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or a review on Apple. Sharing the podcast with a friend or colleague is also a big help. This episode is a special one featuring a couple of my collaborators on a report published back in March for the California 100 Initiative. My guests are Dana Cuff of UCLA City Lab, and Carolina Reed of Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation, and the report looks at the past, present, and future of housing in California. We dig into some of the policies and past decisions that might make California uniquely bad when it comes to housing outcomes, but also the history we share with the rest of the U.S. and why our story and our problems are really the story and problems of a nation. The report is a great introduction to the what, why, and how of the housing crisis, and this interview is the intro to that intro. As a part of the report and this conversation, we also envision the future of housing and the critical choices that will shape that future. That also happens to have been one of the most challenging and rewarding parts of the project, so take a listen and check out the report too if you like. The Housing Voice Podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Hannah Barlow. While we're on break, feel free to send me your feedback or show ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Cuff and Dr. Reed. Dana Cuff is a professor of architecture here at UCLA and the founder and director of City Lab, an architecture and urban research think tank. And Carolina Reed is an associate professor of city and regional planning at Berkeley, as well as the faculty research advisor at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation. Dana, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks for having me. And Carolina, welcome to you. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. So the project we're going to be talking about today isn't quite a research paper like we usually do. It's a report, but I think it's important for a few reasons that I'll get into. And this is also the Lewis Center's show, so I can make exceptions when it means we get to share our own work here. To give some background, this report was one of 13 commissioned by the California 100 Initiative, each of us tasked with looking at a different aspect of policy within the state. Ours was housing and community development, but there were also reports on transportation, advanced technology, immigration, health and healthcare, energy, and various other topics. We were given two tasks. One was to outline the facts, origins, and trends that define the housing landscape in California, or to put that another way, to explain how things stand today, how we got here, and where we're headed. Two was to think about what the future of California looks like 20, 50, 100 years in the future, and and what that future might look like depending on the goals and the values that we prioritize today and in the coming years. So before I go on to explain more about the project, 
normally at the start here, we would ask that both of you give us a tour of your hometown or favorite city, but we're kind of short on time and there's two of you. And so this time, I'd like if we could just each take a minute to share our gratitude to our partners on this project. We were the lead authors along with Kenny Wong, who couldn't make it today, but there were many other folks involved with this and this project really would not have been possible without them. Most of our collaborators were with City Lab or the Turner Center, while I was mostly riding solo at the Lewis Center. So I will just start by thanking each of you, Dana, Carolina, and also Ghost Kenny. Um, I served <laughs> as the principal investigator on the project, but you all carried at least as much weight and, and made it possible for each of us to play to our strengths. So thank you for your support and your great ideas and for bearing me with me with all my last minute revisions and questions. You were all amazing partners, and I do feel very fortunate that we were able to work on this together. But you also managed a whole bunch of folks who deserve their own plaudits. So let me pass it to you and, and let's hear it for them as well. I can start. Um, yeah, I want to just underline what a pleasure it was working with both of you and the conversations that we had. And also lift up Kenny Wong, who really <laughs> was the guy who shouldered the majority of the work from City Lab's perspective. He's moved on to be a faculty member at the University of Arizona, so he's doing wonderful things, Yay. but he's keeping very busy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other people who were really instrumental on City Lab's side were Cassie Hoprick, who did a lot of mm -hmm. the interviews, um, and she's now a consultant in urban planning in New York, but she did an amazing job. And Chu Wen Chi, who was the graphic uh, genius behind all of our translations of uh, thoughts about the future of housing into something that we could actually see uh, and imagine, which I think is really what City Lab's greatest contribution might be. Lastly, Rain Laborde Ruiz kind of did a lot of work for us, uh, sewing up all the details at the end and really making our side of it uh, professional. Yeah, so, uh, and I just want to add, it was an absolute pleasure working with the whole team on this. Uh, this was a, a true example of collaboration and the parts being more than the whole. I think I got that totally wrong, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shane, uh, thanks for your leadership on this. And Dana, I have to say, I'm still totally awed by your team's designs and ability to translate <laughs> ideas into compelling images. Uh, truly amazing. Um, at the Turner Center, I want to do a special shout out to Shazia Manji, Miki Kobayashi, and Sam Wilkinson uh, for all, all of their help data crunching and doing interviews. Um, and then, of course, to <clears throat> sorry, my colleagues, Elizabeth Kneebone, David Garcia, and Ben Metcalf, uh, who provided guidance and feedback throughout. Great. So coming back to the summary of this report and what it was all about, I said this is important for a few reasons, and one is that I think it serves as a great introduction for anyone just starting to learn about California's housing challenges. It lays out the scale and the scope of the problem, but also traces a lot of history that led us here. So in particular, so much of the history of housing is bound up in explicitly racist and white supremacist policies and goals that over time transformed into superficially race-neutral policies. And it's important that we make clear how even dry topics like zoning and tax policy are linked to that really darker past and, and often perpetuate similar outcomes. Another reason I think this report is valuable 
is that while it's about California, it can really serve as a cautionary tale and a guide for, for much of the rest of the country. I talked to folks from all over the U.S. about housing policy, and one of the main messages that I deliver is that California is not really uniquely bad at housing policy, maybe a little bit uniquely bad, but not all that different. We've just felt the impacts of our bad policies in ways that most other regions haven't, largely just because a lot of people want to live here, and for good reason. But we're seeing those same growth pressures elsewhere, and a lot of cities and states are just as ill-prepared as we were and are. The good news for them is that they can still take action before things get really bad, whereas we are already in the muck, and it's going to take a lot more, a lot bigger lift to pull ourselves out of it. So while the report is very California-centric, many of the origins of our crisis and the trends looking ahead are definitely mirrored across the country. So you don't need to live in California to get something out of it. The last thing I'll say in introducing the report is that it also has a creative component, one that asked us to imagine different futures for California, both hopeful ones and pessimistic ones. And it gave us the space to think about the most critical questions that we as a state need to answer and how our collective answers to those questions would shape the future of affordability, of homeownership, homelessness, sustainability, access to opportunity, racial justice, and a lot of other important stuff. So I'll stop there, but Carolina and Dana, let me pass it to you. Is there anything you want to add by way of introducing the report? I, I haven't even in, mentioned all the folks that we interviewed as part of this project, so I definitely want to get into that as we dive further in, into the details too. I think that was a really good summary of both the sort of structure and objectives um, and, and, and that blending of data and policy analysis, but then also creativity, right? Like the, the, the process mm -hmm. of imagining, the process of thinking about what alternative futures might look like. Um, we don't get to do that very often, right? We're, yeah, we're often yeah. in that sort of data and evidence-driven world. And so for me, it was, it was fun to stretch um, our thinking in that way. And I guess I would add that that is kind of, I think we're not as good at the data piece, though we do the historical work and then some kinds of um, humanistic contemporary analysis, but the future trends is sort of where we focus. But I think even though I've been really focused on public impact and making sure that the research we do has an audience, this report was more guided by its public audience than I think any other I've ever worked on. And I mm. really appreciated the challenge that that presented to us. I mean, we three would get into big academic arguments, and then we'd realize that some of that was really just in our own uh, brain <laughs> worlds. And what was of interest to Cal 100 was something that was much more translatable. So it forced us to think about uh, those positions and uh, results and data and findings in ways that people could really understand, which isn't easy. Yeah, I've learned this, you know, when you write for the LA Times or the Atlantic yes. or someone, it's very nice to have an editor <laughs> who's who's thinking about the audience, uh, which I think as academics, sometimes we don't emphasize quite as much as we should. And, and frankly, as, as a part of the the reason we created this podcast to try to translate some of the the more academic work that is not at all intended for a, a general audience um, when we think it's appropriate. So my plan for this interview 
is for us to go through this report as it's structured, starting with the facts about housing in California, then moving on to the origins or how we got here, and then the trends that help tell the story of where we're headed. We'll be picking out some of the highlights and major takeaways from those parts of the report. Then we'll move on to the future scenarios that we envisioned with the help of our housing expert interviewees, who we'll talk about later. And finally, the policies that might lead us to the more of those appealing possible scenarios. So let's start with the facts. One thing, and again, we're just going to each kind of pull up some things out here that interested us. It's not going to cover the whole thing. But the one that really stuck with me on the facts is that California wasn't always so wildly expensive compared to the rest of the country. Today, the median home in California is more than twice as expensive as the median home nationwide. But if you go back to the 60s and 70s, the gap was more like 30 to 40%. So we were more expensive, but not dramatically so. And that tells me that such high prices are not some natural law of California. They're the result of choices that we've made or didn't make. And it also tells me that if we in California can go from relatively affordable to wildly unaffordable, that other states and metro areas have exactly that same potential to screw things up, frankly. Another thing that stuck with me was a quote by Christopher Hawthorne, one of our interviewees, formerly of the LA Times and with the LA mayor's office the past several years. He said, quote, we are at a point in Los Angeles and California where we're seeing the population plateau or even decline for the first time since the 18th century. That is not only a statistical change, it is a shift in how we define ourselves in our civic identity. The fundamental reason people are leaving is the high cost of housing. And obviously that wasn't news to me or either of you, but I think he put his finger on what a monumental shift it is for us to go from being a growing state to a, a shrinking or a stagnating state. It's not just about those numbers, as he said, but about how we see ourselves and whether we are a place that continues to see itself as dynamic and welcoming and always evolving, or if we are becoming something more static and insular. The answer to that question absolutely shapes our housing policy choices, and I think our housing policy choices have also shaped our answer to that question over the last few decades. So again, to pass this back to both of you, what are a few things about the on-the-ground facts here in California that we put in the report that stood out to you or stuck with you in some way? Well, I think this kind of builds off of Chris Hawthorne's comment, but and this has been shaping up for the last 20 years at least, that the imaginary in California was always that there was uh, more land and resources beyond wherever you were that could solve your problem in terms of housing. Mm -hmm. So you could always move further out. I mean, it was a kind of sprawl mentality. Um, and now what we see, even post-pandemic, is that all of those areas have housing prices that have gone up. Small metro areas have some of the highest housing increases, almost double what it was in some of the urban areas. So there's a kind of nowhere left to turn idea that Californians have to begin to accept. And I think with that, um, the ideas of how to retrofit our cities so that they actually 
you know, bring people the quality of life that they're looking for, but in new ways without the imaginary of a kind of, I don't know, Levittown or suburban sprawl model, mm-hmm. you know, that's where we have to be looking now so that we can get the kind of housing uh, alternatives that we need to see. Because really, there's no further out to go. And that's why I think Hawthorne's comment that people are leaving. At first, we just shifted uh, into different parts of California. Now people are actually moving all the way out. And I do think that, you know, Texas is an interesting place to juxtapose against us, because I think for good reason, to some extent, we point to Texas and say, like, look, it's building a lot of housing and prices are, are much more stable there. And and that's all true. And they've actually done some things on infill with small lot sizes and things like that. Yeah. But I think it's also the case that a lot of it is just sprawl and they're sort of right. a decade or two behind us. And eventually they're going to run up against those same limits, not to mention, you know, putting aside the land impacts and just the the, the sprawling stuff. There's the sustainability and, and how unsustainable that is uh, environmentally and so forth as well. Yeah. Well, I think your point, Shane, that... Um... We shouldn't think of California as always the leader in this, and everyone's going to follow in our footsteps. That's a kind of conceit that I think we could abandon. But Mm -hmm. when you see places like Arkansas or Bentonville, where they're actually concentrating small metro areas into higher densities, more resources, more mixed use, that's a model we didn't use when we had green fields that we could have developed. Carolina? Yeah, I think uh, I think all of these points are so fascinating, and I, I love the idea that we need to move away from that sort of past imaginary of what California is and where it's going. I think the thing that most struck me as we pull together all these different data points, um, and I think it's rare to take such a, a broad scope on every housing issue within one report. Um, so I think the thing that stood out to me was that how all these factors are really interrelated. Right. So that the house and how the rise in house prices and housing cost burdens is really aligned with rising rates of homelessness across the state, Mm -hmm. which is also connected to the fact that as a country, we fail to invest enough in housing assistance for low income renters. Right. Right. And then if we think about like the difficulty of building enough supply to meet demand, especially in infill locations, is also directly tied to the number of structures we're building in the wildlife urban interface. And they're mm-hmm. now at risk of fire damage, which in turn are heightening the risk of climate change <laughs> by increasing commutes and the need for air conditioning, right? So I think the full suite of data and charts in the report really brought home to me the interconnected nature of these challenges um, and the fact that if we want a more just and sustainable housing future, we're going to have to tackle the underlying structural causes, not just chip away at the symptoms. Yeah, yeah. And I think that sort of also brings us back to Dana's point of we also have to have a different imaginary of what California is and where we're going. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to origins of the housing crisis or just the housing issues we're dealing with. And I think one chart sums up a lot of this for me. And it's the one that shows the gap in homeownership rates between black households and white households over time. And that gap fell between 1960 and 1970, and then it fell again in 1980. And this is for, correct me if I'm wrong, I actually did not think to look at this. This is the whole United States, right? Yeah, but the trends are similar for California. Right, right. And and so, you know, it, it fell for a few decades straight. It was still 
25 percentage points gap. It was still a very large gap, but it had been falling. We'd been making progress. The Fair Housing Act passed in 1968, and it prohibited a lot of the race-based housing discrimination that had been permitted up to that point, however imperfectly. And I think it's reasonable to assume that it played at least some role in the narrowing of the racial homeownership gap. But the gap started to widen again by 1990, and it's increased each decade all the way to the most recent data in 2018. The gap is now larger than it was in 1968, and that's just shameful to my mind. It's really inexcusable. And it highlights a few things for me, one of which is how racism has pervaded the housing market and the policies that structure it for a very long time. And just because we've forbidden explicitly racist practices doesn't mean the prejudices and even the systems that led to those practices have gone away entirely. It's no coincidence, I think, that a lot of the downzoning that occurred in cities came about around the late 60s and the 70s, right after the Fair Housing Act was passed or as it was kind of coming to fruition. And the effect was to increase the price of housing. And without ever mentioning race, those cities that downzoned were able to make it harder for people of color to live there. And that is, of course, a problem that we are still trying to solve and, and living with the impacts today. Beyond the Fair Housing Act, we also go back to the advent of racial zoning and the invention of single-family-only zoning in Berkeley, of all places, and how that was actually celebrated by the California real estate magazine for its, quote, protection against invasion of Negroes and Asiatics, unquote. And of course, other things along the same vein, like the exclusion of Black households from GI Bill benefits, redlining, racial covenants, and so on. So passing this back again, Carolina and Dana, is there anything you want to highlight from the how we got here section? I feel like this section in particular could have been written about just about anywhere in the country. We touch on some very California specific policies like Proposition 13 and the California Environmental Quality Act. But a lot of the story of our state really is the story of the entire nation when it comes to housing issues. Yeah, it is a story of a nation. And when we look specifically at racial gaps in homeownership, um, we are looking at trends in mortgage access and the foreclosure crisis, and then the rise of uh, speculative investors coming in and buying up single family homes. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of these trends are similar across the state. Um, I do want to push back a little bit because I do think that California specifics like Proposition 13 and CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, really exacerbate housing challenges in mm -hmm. our state um, and make it particularly difficult to address these concerns. And so I think there are structural factors um, that make us, what you said at the beginning of the podcast, uniquely bad. <laughs> um, and, and I just want to give a couple examples because I think it's important that we, we use this opportunity to imagine different futures, to really talk about the, the structural problems and not just the, the manifestations of those. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's just take CEQA, right? Um, it's become what Chris Elmendorf calls a super statute, which holds particulative, particular normative and judicial sway and shapes interventions well beyond its original intent. Um, and CEQA's done a lot of good, right? It's protected the state's natural rich environment. It's provided communities an opportunity to engage in the planning process and have a voice when things are being proposed that impact their neighborhoods. These are all elements of CEQA we want to keep. 
Um, but the goal of protecting the environment today looks really different than it did in the 1970s, right? Now yeah. we need to focus mm -hmm. on land use. We need to focus on densification. Um, we want to build more housing near jobs if we hope to make a dent in greenhouse gas emissions. And CEQA is being misused in ways that prevent that from happening. And I think like Prop 13, right, also exacerbates the racial inequalities you were talking about earlier by benefiting older, largely white homeowners and making it more difficult for younger and households of color to buy homes. Um, so I do think California faces some unique headwinds, and we need to develop that political will to be honest about those headwinds and think about how to address them while keeping the, the good original intent of some of this legislation. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And maybe you, uh, just going back to something Carolina said earlier about the interconnectedness of all these issues, you know, the thing that seems obvious, but we don't often put it together, is that while white flight was actually a white pressure to move out, right, there was the means by which tax benefits accrued to people who could buy in the suburbs, that left the redlined or racial zoning areas in the center without any funding. And so that double effect produced the kind of racialized inequities that we are still absolutely facing today. And you're right, it's a shame, but it also feels like a crime. And maybe mm -hmm. we um, maybe we in California have another kind of special condition because as the sort of mother of sprawl here in Los Angeles <laughs> in particular, we allowed that to happen more dramatically than other cities did, who, which had stronger urban cores and maybe less land to um, advantage white homeowners through especially tax benefits. Yeah. And I, I do feel like calling it a crime, I mean, I think it's appropriate. And the more that we're seeing households like younger households or even older households rely on family wealth for home ownership, uh, which is just a growing and growing issue where if you don't have that family, family wealth, that generational wealth, often which came from access to home ownership from your parents or their parents, it's, it's a very clear case of, of sort of the, the generational impacts and, and almost like a, a case of generational theft going on here. And obviously, there's a very heavy racialized element to that as well. Well, and you know, we'd have to add to this that all our affordable housing programs are rental programs. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. never is going to assist in the building of generational wealth. I mean, it's one of the continuing inequities that then our solution to people who have been cut out of the housing proposition, their reward is something that's a rental unit, not the homes that in many cases were taken from them through various kinds of eminent domain and other practices. Mm -hmm. And we will actually come back to that. I mean, you're, you're kind of hinting at the, the private gain aspect of, of housing, and that comes up in our future scenarios and our trends. So let's transition here to the trends section. And for this, we considered four sort of macro trends and two things that every report had to include called critical uncertainties. The macro trends that are shaping and will shape housing policies and outcomes that we selected are climate change, 
rising wealth and income inequality and systemic racism, all of which I think are pretty self-explanatory and how they contribute to to our housing challenges. And then a, a, a kind of more creative one or one we don't hear as much about that we added was political polarization and, and realignment, which is a different thing. So by that one, we're referring to the certainly the left-right polarization that we're seeing all over the country and which has started to creep into housing in some ways, but also the ways in which housing really doesn't fit with the typical political frames. You have wealthy coastal cities that voted 85% for Biden that at the same time have some of the most exclusionary NIMBY policies in the state and you know are, are 95% white and the median home value is $2.5 million. Um, these are not welcoming places when you get down to it. And at the same time, you've seen some Republicans get on board with reforms to promote more housing construction, like San Diego's former mayor, who led on efforts to upzone around transit and eliminate parking minimums in some areas. And after that, uh, those reforms took place, the city saw a huge increase in both market rate and below market housing production. Point being, knowing someone's politics doesn't necessarily tell you much about their views on housing. And that's both a risk and an opportunity maybe to create some unusual coalitions. The critical uncertainty section, this is where we are really starting to look ahead because they shape the four possible scenarios for California's future, which again, I think mirror, at least in many ways, the future of the rest of the country. We're basically asking two questions here with these uncertainties, um, the way that we have structured them. First, the first question is, will California build a lot of housing or only a little? And second, will our policies prioritize the role of housing in generating private gains or in advancing social equity? And I'm sure we'll kind of talk about how those things can be in tension in some ways. If you can imagine a standard two-axis chart with a scenario in each quadrant, the vertical axis is housing production and the horizontal axis is housing for private gain on the left and housing for social equity on the right. So rather than me continuing to explain all of this, Carolina, <laughs> let me turn it to you. Could you give the audience a little backstory on how we arrived at these two axes and why we think they're so central to the state's future? I think this was maybe the most challenging part of the project, but also the most fun and rewarding. So I'm sure Dana and I will also have some thoughts to add here too. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Um, and it was the most difficult part of the project, though I think the challenge was more about figuring out the right framing rather than any disagreement among all of us about what really matters. Mm -hmm. um, I think at one level, we all agreed that we need more housing supply. But how that supply gets built, for whom and where, are really important questions that actually sort of determine whether or not that supply is really the answer. Mm -hmm. um, a bunch of speculative investments in a luxury condo or sprawling suburban tracks, to Dana's point, uh, on desert lands, right, far from employment centers, isn't what we need in terms of added supply. So, so this got us to the trickier dimension. What do we really mean by social, racial, and environmental justice in housing, right? How do we really, what do we really mean about what's going to get built and for whom and where? Um, and I think ultimately we landed on a principle rather than a specific empirical definition of justice, right? A principle that anchors housing as a public good rather than as a private gain. 
Mm-hmm. And just to help make that a little bit more concrete, I think for us, it's a principle that leads to greater investments in housing as a basic need that should be accessible to all, rather than what we have right now, which is the inverse, where housing becomes an investment to further wealth building among the few. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's thinking about housing as uh, a, a, an anchor for community building and community self-determination. It's thinking about housing as a place for people to live and raise their families. It's a place for where housing is uh, sort of that that stable foundation on which educational labor market, um, all sorts of outcomes are better rather than what we have now, which is. I want to buy a house or I'm going to invest in housing because I'm going to make a lot of money and be richer 10 mm-hmm. years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And the social equity public good aspect of this, I think is it's interesting too, because it clearly intersects with the production side of things. And I think, you know, in particular, part of what has made housing for private gain so lucrative is because production has been limited. So that scarcity has has made home ownership very just homes in general very valuable. And so the link between those two things, I think we all felt it was important to highlight that and also to highlight how these things don't need to be intention. I do think that's often the the frame that we debate these issues along is is this idea that you're you're either pro housing or you're pro tenant or pro equity. And that, um, you know, if you are pro-housing, you have to be anti-tenant. And if you're pro-tenant, you have to be anti-housing. And just how that can't work in the long run. And you just can't have, I mean, I guess you could have social equity with very limited housing, but it wouldn't be very pleasant. Um, It would be egalitarian, but we'd all be kind of destitute. And that's like, why would we aspire to that, right? When we could just build homes and actually (laughs) combine that with social equity goals. Um, Dana, anything you want to add to all that? Well, I think I would just say that in some ways, the myth of this uh, middle-class housing movement after the war was kind of what you were just describing, Shane, that there was this idea that we could build enough and we had enough land for everyone. Of course, that was also a veil over uh, white supremacist pri- privilege right. that came it was, with that. It was never truly it was never everyone. Really for everyone. Right. No, but, yeah. but it did rest on this fundamental idea that you could build something, you could just keep building and that could work. And I think in the suburban model, we saw how that didn't work both in terms of excess for everyone, but also in terms of environmental issues. And so in some ways, we've already had a historic test of that model that building your way out of it isn't going to be sufficient. So in that sense, the question is, how do we complicate in ways that can be politically powerful, the idea of building housing that also has a social equity component to it. Those together really just haven't existed, I think, historically in the United States. We built public housing for the very poor, and that was very controversial. And then we built uh, single family homes for the middle class. And those two things didn't come together. So that maybe is yeah. the way we think about this future that has both high production and high social equity. 
And, you know, when I talk to folks who are more on the like pro housing, YIMBY side of things who are, who are more focused on supply, you know, that's how I came to housing. It's still something I feel is really essential. And, and you know, if that problem is not addressed, then the other things we do are probably not going to matter all that much. But, you know, the more I work on this stuff, the more I just appreciate how, especially for renters, we've just never treated them well. And I think it's largely because they've mostly in the past been poor people, people of color, immigrants. And now as as these problems are creeping up the income ladder and and reaching into, you know, uh, other racial and ethnic groups, there's more attention paid to it. But, you know, I think any conception of the future of this country where we think that things are getting better is one where tenants have a lot more security and predictability about like what their housing situation will look like a year, five years from now. Whereas right now, that's just not what most places, California is better at this than most places. But even then, we are we're not doing enough on that front. Well, I can tell you that uh, from architecture, you know, we always think about building. That's our job. Um, so <laughs> right. building our way out of it has been so much of the DNA of the architecture profession. And I remember a particular conversation that we had, the three or four of us uh, with the ghost Kenny involved, um, <laughs> where we were talking about the problems of place making that doesn't include place keeping. And that was a kind of light bulb that went off for me of how I would, as an architect, think about place keeping along with place making. Uh, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a way in which that encapsulates some of the uh, issues that we're talking about, about the future of housing in California. How do we keep it so that tenants actually have what you're describing, Shane, which is uh, the qualities of life that we've only associated with home ownership before? Right. And how right. do we make it so that people aren't pushed out of their neighborhoods when new housing is built? If we have the supply side model, we have to manage also the um, continuation of existing communities that that just isn't part of the uh sort of theoretical or practical equations that we've developed around housing and housing subsidy even in the past yeah and and i do want to know you know i I don't know if we're going to have time to talk a lot about our interviewees but we talk to folks from all over the state in all kinds of different types of jobs in advocacy in the legal side developers environmentalists city officials, state officials. And and we heard very consistently that, yes, we need to build a lot more homes. And yes, we need to prioritize social equity in a way that we have not and still are not. And and really, no one saw those things as contradictory, uh, which was really encouraging. I was a little worried that, <laughs> I don't know, just based on my kind of local uh, debates and, and controversies I see around here, sometimes it feels like people think it's one or the other. But when we talked to people just all over the place, they, they, they didn't feel that way at all. They felt like this is a, a yes and kind of uh, solution. So let's move on to, we kind of talked about trends a little bit, but we gave an overview of the trends on housing production and the ways that we've been trying to advance social equity through housing related policies here in California. And I will say that we've been doing a lot of good things on both fronts in the state in recent years. For me, the defining feature of our progress is intervention by the state government. There's been a realization, I think, that 
we have a collective action problem that every city has individually rational reasons for not wanting to build much housing within its borders. And the overall effect is a state that's buckling under the pressure of, frankly, not even very fast growth at all, uh, certainly not by historical standards. And yet it still just feels like it's overwhelming us. We've left things to cities for the better part of a century. And despite their arguments that local governments know best um, and that they you know, are closest to their constituencies and communities and, and know how to plan for their cities, we've seen the outcomes of that approach with skyrocketing housing prices, overcrowding, homelessness, lower and middle income households leaving the state alongside quite a few businesses as well, and all the other problems we're familiar with. So that wasn't working. And the state is finally stepping up and saying that, you know, someone has to be the adult in the room. And if that means some of you local governments and officials are going to be angry at us for taking away your toys, then so be it. As a result, we've seen things like the ADU laws and SB9 that have legalized small scale incremental development all over the state. Tons of funding for affordable housing and shelter for the formerly unhoused and tenant protections like we saw in AB 1482, the anti-rent gouging law that prohibits exorbitant rent increases, and SB 330, which pairs sort of pro-home building provisions with really strong displacement protections. I think it's a, a really great model combining those two things in one bill. I'll be the first to say that none of these laws or programs go far enough to meet the urgency of the crisis that we're facing. But I also think sometimes it's important to step back and acknowledge how far we've come and how many of the things that have been achieved in the past five years that we wouldn't have imagined possible. I certainly wouldn't have just, you know, seven or 10 years ago. So thinking about these trends, are there any specific ones that either of you want to draw people's attention to maybe, you know, one or two of the bad ones as well, since it's not all rosy here and we don't want to give the impression that we can just continue business as usual and end up in a better place. Carolina, if you yeah. like. Yeah, you go, Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I agree that there's considerable, there's been considerable progress um, and that we should recognize that. I, I remember going to an event in, I think it was like 2014, when then Governor Jerry Brown um, said that, literally publicly said that housing was not a priority for the state. Mm, I do um, remember and that. that he was focused on education and climate change. And I, I had to pick my job off the floor, right? <laughs> because housing is fundamental to everything, including education and climate change. I just spent some time looking back at past budgets. And until 2018, 2019, the state budget didn't even have sort of a dedicated section to homelessness. Um, and oh, that has yeah. changed considerably, right? And so um, I do think that one of the biggest uh, signs of progress is that housing is on the political agenda. Uh, we're passing laws. We're, we're trying things. We're talking about it. We're debating about production and equity. And to me, that that's huge progress. Mm -hmm. And then I also have to say I am encouraged by the unprecedented investments the state is making to address homelessness. Um, there's a long way to go there as well, right? This is, there's, we are not at the solution yet, uh, but funding does matter. And, and for too long, we have underfunded the, the equity piece in housing. And so I think moving the needle on that's really important. Do you have an example or two of those investments that you would want to share? 
So I think HomeKey is really interesting. Again, not totally unflawed as a program, but here is uh, unprecedented investments in acquiring buildings for permanent supportive housing. Mm -hmm. It's brought way more affordable housing units online, way faster than anything else we've ever done in the past, um, and at lower cost. Um, again, it's it's situated within a fragmented housing financing system, so there's still challenges with uh, operations funding and other things. But like that's that's a that's government innovation at work and putting money where your mouth is. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that was really good. I think for me, the the biggest question and negative is whether or not we can sustain these efforts because the history of housing is filled of examples where we. They tried to do, they failed because they tried to do too little or they were abandoned too soon. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we, need to, we need to sustain these efforts. We could add to that propositions H and HHH, you know, the funding mm-hmm. for permanent supportive housing here, which um, has been strangely misdiagnosed as not being successful. I mean, these, you know, housing developments take a really long period of time. And of course, they each unit costs more than any of us wishes it does. But in the long run, those policies are extremely effective and people tax themselves to pay for them. The, the problem that I see in that is, you know, 10,000, 11,000 units that that uh, legislation might provide is nothing compared to the 70,000 people alone we have living on the streets, unsheltered in Los Angeles, and we find 23,000 units per year to get people off the streets, 20,000, I'm sorry, and 23,000 new people fall into homelessness. So well, th- there has I- to be some bigger solution than that. Sorry, Carolina. No, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think it goes back to sort of our, our key dimensions in that right. as long as we have rising income inequality, right, as long as we are not investing in renters, right, that inflow into homelessness is always going to exceed what we can build on the other side. Right. And so we need to address some of those those larger factors. I want to go back to something you said, Shane, about the laws like the ADU law and particularly SB9. Mm -hmm. And I actually see real hope in that. I mean, CityLab was really active in the ADU law, as was the Turner Center, I know. And the beauty of that was finding land in the city or in the suburbs that are already built that was available for housing and could uh, roll out uh, bit by bit. And overall, you know, there's probably... I mean, there's 8 million single family homes, something like that in the state of California. If a 10th of them built, you know, we'd have a huge Mm -hmm. amount of new housing and slowly but surely those uh, new units are getting built. But what I find especially encouraging is that though that seemed radical when it passed in 2016, now we've gone to this new doubling of that idea, instead of just two units per single family lot, we could now have four units per single family lot, and that could become two lots. So that, to me, is a radical escalation of densifying the suburbs. And to me, that's a really important trend that I see great hope in. It's not the only answer, but Maybe unlike, say, the Housing Act of 1937 or 1949, when we thought we could provide uh, as a nation the kind of affordable housing we need, now we need 
30 programs to do that. And one of those <laughs> might be SB9. Another that we've just been working on is to build house, affordable housing on school properties. And it looks like that's mm -hmm. going to go forward. So I'm really excited about that. Another kind of uh, found site model for where housing could be built into communities across the entire state. Yeah, yeah. And I do think, you know, the, the breadth of the ADU laws and SB9 is part of the power, just how how widely spread it is to the point where you have these extra development rights, but you really don't expect land values to go up as a result because every parcel has that same potential. So none of them is special in that way. Whereas the way we tend to do, you know, redevelopment and um, rezoning is, is more kind of neighborhood by neighborhood, parcel by parcel. And a lot of times the land values end up reflecting the additional capacity that we, that we allow on them. And, you know, I think ADUs in particular are unique because usually the person already owns the home. And so there is no land cost whatsoever. And I think that the two key things really are no land cost effectively, and then not having to demolish the existing use to build the new one, right, um, which is right. a huge barrier. And when you can just add something without taking away, I think that it's a much easier process. So a smaller hurdle to jump over. All right, well, let's talk about scenarios here, the scenarios that come out of these two critical uncertainties. As I said, the two axes create four quadrants. So starting in the bottom left and moving clockwise, we have one with low production and housing for private gain. Uh, and then we go up to high production and prioritizing private gain. Then to the right, we have high production and housing for social equity or, or public good. And then in the bottom corner, we have low production and prioritizing social equity. Dana, you, you have to depart us earlier. I'm going to ask maybe if you could uh, sketch these out for us a little bit. And uh, Kenny was, was really the leader on this. I wish we had him here. Yeah. But uh, you all put together a wonderful graphic with it, which Carolina mentioned as well. And we'll make sure to include prominently in our on the podcast show notes. Kenny and Chu and Chi together. Yeah. Yes, and yes. really shame when you describe it like that. I feel like I'm taking a spatial relations IQ test or something like, oh, I can't keep all <laughs> that together. Um, but maybe we could just look at the lower left, the low production, high profit, and the upper right, mm -hmm. high equity, yeah, yeah. high production, and contrast those two, because that's sort of the crux of the matter. Um, and in that lower quadrant where we're not building much and we're going for private gain. So in that lower quadrant, new feudalisms, I mean, it's actually not that new. It's actually where we're headed, <laughs> right? Which is that, and I think you said it earlier, like the lower production actually pushes up the private gain. And so there's a disincentive amongst those who really are working on housing as investment. Everything from or like older version of exchange values to purely investment, right? People don't even need to live there. People, uh, you know, companies buying up foreclosed properties and holding them for highest value. There's a way in which that just pushes all of the worst aspects of what we're seeing today further down that path, greater homelessness, uh, more disinvestment in low-income neighborhoods that need investment, so that uh, contrast, I think, is the frightening future 
that we could get if we don't start acting on this in the ways that all of this research suggests. So, okay, there's the dark side. When the sun comes up uh, and our optimism and the optimism of so many people who are in housing come together, it's a California for all picture. And, you know, I don't really think there's anyone who wouldn't want that. There may be greed that, uh, you know, taints this version. But when anyone thinks about the state, it, we all benefit from everyone having a decent place to live. So that's really thinking of housing as a basic human right and that we're producing enough housing, as Carolina said, in the right places for the right people under the right conditions so that you know we have a functioning economy as well as a functioning environment as well as the next generation of Californians you know growing up in ways that they have all of the access to services and spaces that they need so both market and non-market meaning private production of housing as well as versions of subsidized housing get made in the California for all model um I don't know. I think we've talked about a few of the ways in which that California for all thinking, you can see glimmers of it or threads of it that are that could be braided together. I did want to pick up on pick up a thread on something you you said about how, you know, it's it's strange that we don't have a California for all right now. And uh, and our policies definitely don't reflect that right now, given that you're probably right that if someone could just wave a magic wand and make it real, almost everyone would support that happening. But in practice, lots of people don't support the things that would make that happen. And I think it may just be worth thinking about or talking about why that's the case. You know, I, I, the first thing that comes to mind for me is just the fact that a lot of people feel like they have a lot to lose. And so they're not confident that the future that we're talking about will come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So maybe all that happens is, you know, their home value falls and, and there's no real benefit to anyone. It's just people have less. I just want to, I don't have a, a question exactly here, but I think that that's a really difficult and important question of like, why is it that despite it, it being a pretty universally held, I think what we would like to see the state look like when it comes to the specific policies that most people would agree would get us there. We just can't, can't move forward, can't come to an agreement on them. I, I'm really shocked. I don't know if you two have this same experience, but in progressive conversations, uh, people who are real housing advocates, there's a real intolerance that's brewing around our unhoused neighbors. And I'm really stunned by that. And I think that's partly because it's gotten so broad and, you know, so populated on the streets that people can't see a way out. So one answer to what you're saying, Shane, is that I'm not sure people can envision a possible solution. And so instead of imagining California for all, that seems like a fiction that no one's willing to buy into. And that I think is on the other side of they've got a lot to lose is they can't imagine a way out. Yeah, I guess I would, I, I agree with that. I also think that 
systems work in the way they've been designed. Um, and there are a lot of people and organizations and institutions that benefit from the status quo um, mm-hmm. and that are making significant wealth off of the the current crisis. And so I think we often underestimate the the power of those institutions to try and maintain the status quo. And I think that's where we see some of the tensions because the communities that are being most impacted by those speculative investments are now pushing back and saying, no, right? Like this, this housing is not benefiting me. It's not benefiting my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think some of the tensions arise around that. And I think it's it's one of the things that we have to fix most because even with really positive policies like SB9, we're starting to see really different implementation across different cities in terms of what's allowed under SB9. That's going to sort of undo what you said, Shane, which is that SB9 applies sort of universally everywhere. And so it may not have the same sort of distortion effects. Well, when one city says, well, your SB9 has to have all marble counters, right? Like, then all of a sudden you're going to end up with, with, with exactly that same unevenness. Um, so I think we need to be realistic that it is going to take a significant political shift mm-hmm. and a reorientation to how we think about housing and land and and property. Yeah, I do like that focus on structures. And just in the last couple episodes of this podcast, this has come up, this idea that you know our structures are set up to make it very easy to say no and increasingly easy in some ways. You know, that, that came up in our conversation with Michael Hankinson and how district elections increase minority representation, but they also decrease housing supply. And so we need some kind of complementary policies or processes that actually allow us to envision a better future, not just prevent a worse one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of where we've been stuck. Dana, I know you have to go. Uh, I'm going to keep Carolina for a few more minutes if I can. But um, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for working with us on this project. It was so much fun. The podcast just reminds me of how much I enjoy these conversations and how much I learned from both <laughs> of you. So I hope we get to do another project soon, like take California 100 one more step and actually invent a few policies that reflect some of the findings that we have. I'd love to do that. That sounds great. And maybe one day I'll meet you in person, Carolina. I know. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> it's like ghost, uh, ghost Kenny and virtual Dana. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Bye, Dana. Take care. So Carolina, um, with our with our last few minutes here, we just kind of mentioned the policies, which I think, you know, were not an emphasis of this report, I think, in part because the policies we need to adopt are kind of well known and have been so well established in other places. But just to to at least touch on this a little bit, if we do want a California where there's enough safe, healthy and dignified housing for all and where people have real choice about where to live and they have security once they've made that choice, what needs to change? We should cover the headlines in the report here, but I know you're thinking about this question all the time, independent of the work we did on this project. So feel free to toss in anything that we couldn't fit into the report, too. Yeah, and I think earlier we touched on a lot of the most important supply-oriented policies. Um, Again, I think one of the reasons the report doesn't delve 
too specifically into any one policy is that for all of those, the devil is in the details, right? How you structure zoning reform, how you structure tenant protections, uh, those details really matter in terms of making sure that the outcomes are what you want and that there aren't unintended consequences. I would say the, the, the number one shift or my number one wish of what I would like to see happen is a, a fundamental reorientation of how we do public subsidies for housing. Because mm-hmm. right now, almost all of those or the majority of those public subsidies go to homeowners. For homeowners are entitled to the subsidies, right? Like if you are a homeowner and you have a mortgage, you are eligible for the mortgage interest tax deduction. You get it writ large, no matter what. Right. Whereas for renters, right, in California, only one in five renters who is eligible for rental assistance actually gets it. And so I feel like that's what we need to shift and move away from seeing renting as the lesser tenure and instead as a very viable tenure that a lot of people choose and want to be and invest in the housing stability for renters as we do homeowners, invest in the asset building for renters as we do homeowners. Um, and I think California could be a leader on this, right? We've been a, we've led the nation on climate change, on LGBTQ rights, on early edu- childhood education. So let's lead the nation on housing and put an end to housing insecurity and, and really, you know, making housing a right for renters as we do for homeowners. Um, so, so that's, 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 that's what I want. That is a, a really good place to end a fairly hopeful California for all kind of vision. So Carolina Reed, thank you so much for joining the Housing Voice podcast today. This was super fun. Thank you, Shane. You can read more about the California 100 report and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again for season two.